Have a seat, everyone. Sorry about that. <laughs> Guess I should be paying attention more back there. Hey, if you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 30 this morning. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 888, I believe. Romans chapter 8, page 888 in the Pew Bibles. I want to begin this morning by, um, maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a popular axiom that life coaches like to use. Maybe you've heard it. If you have no hope for the future, you've got no power for the present. Have you heard that? It's kind of cheesy, but it's catchy, right? If you have no hope for the future, you have no power for the present. I think it's also true. Hope is this amazing thing. Hope is this, this abstract concept that, that something from the, it's something from the future pulling us forward in the present. What oxygen is for the body... Hope is for the soul. You won't last long without it, right? What hopes fill your life? What hope is pulling you forward today? What hope is pulling you forward now? Maybe you're hoping the sermon is short. Maybe you're hoping I can finish the sermon. <laughs> but not all hopes are the same either, right? There are different kinds of hopes. There are Maybe some guy here hoping that a certain girl will say yes when he asks her out after service. Don't get nervous, girls. I have no idea. I'm just using that as an illustration. There may be some guy that's hoping that the results from his last doctor visit come back negative. Very different things at stake. But in both situations, hope is, is pulling them forward, giving them the, what they need, the anticipation to meet the moment where they're at right now. Hopes obviously vary, but they all do the same thing. They fuel our lives with strength so that we can press on. But here's the question. We all know that. We think about it. But here's the important thing. What do you do when your hopes fail, as some inevitably will do? Every one of us, every one of us needs a hope that cannot fail. We need a hope that transcends all our other hopes, one that is so foundational, so strong, so grounded, that when all the other hopes do come crashing down, our lives don't crash and come crashing down with them. What is that hope for you? What is that ultimate hope that frames, puts into perspective, every other relative hope that you might have? That's what I want to talk about this morning. That's, that's what I think Paul is getting at, in part, in Romans chapter 8 and verses 18 to 30. In these 12 verses, as Paul is writing to the Romans, about a hope by which they can build their lives on something. We just sang that just now. Did you mean it? That I'm going to build my life on this hope. That's what these verses are about. These 12 verses. Paul talks about it this way. The hope that is to come. Verses 18 and 25. The hope that is here. Verses 26 to 28. And then the good that is guaranteed. Now the way we'll see these three points. In these, in these 12 verses. Is by asking two questions. That I think it's fair to ask. Why? As in. Why should I, why should anyone build their hope on the Christian hope as opposed to any other of the hopes that are out there in this world? Now, if you are a Christian, don't just assume that. If you're not a Christian, don't simply dismiss that. Every single one of us in this room, right, 
religious or irreligious, Christian or not, left, right, Democrat, Republican, whatever it is, every one of us, we are building our lives on some kind of hope. You can't get away from that. That's the way we're hardwired. Now, you might be thinking, well, uh, that's not me. I don't know what that hope is. Here's a thought experiment. What is the thing that if it was taken away from you today, you would not be able to face tomorrow? What is the thing that if you lost, you could not go on? Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's something more abstract like respect or your reputation. Whatever it is, what is the thing that if you lost it, you just could not go on? That is what I'm talking about as the ultimate hope. The question I guess I want you to think about as we read this, is is that hope secure? Is it strong enough? Will it endure? So the first question we want to ask is, why, uh, why, why should we build our hope on this Christian hope, right? Fair enough. The second question is, how? Um, as in, how can we have assurance that this hope is guaranteed? If we are being asked to build our lives on that hope, how do we have the assurance that this hope will be guaranteed to us when so many other hopes in our lives have let us down? So those are the two questions. So those are the three points and the two questions I kind of want rattling around in your mind to help you navigate as I as I read the text. So Romans 8, 18 to 30. You should be by there. You should be there by now. Would you stand as I read God's word? Romans 8, starting in verse 18. Paul says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers." And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So here's the point, first point, and and I just love it. You see that right in the middle of, of this first section, verse 24, Paul says, For in this hope we were saved. And Paul's referring there to the, the prior six verses that came before. And I've said something about this before, but you know, the more I look around our society today, the actual, actually more encouraged I am that the Christian hope seems more feasible, more attractive now than before. 
And what I mean that is that, but but what I mean by that is that, you know, just as few as just as recently, just a few years ago, there were many things that people could take hope in to build their lives upon: institutions, ideas, beliefs, assumptions. But part of the social angst that we're feeling and the uncertainty in our culture today is because I think what's happening is much of these things that people were building their hopes upon are being proven to be unreliable at, at best and a lie at worst. And you think about whatever field there might be, whether it's politics, uh, education, um, economics, science, technology, you name it, and everything just seems to be falling apart, right? Everywhere you look, whether it's economically, the, 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 the kind of... Uh, there's a geopoliticist, political strategist I've been reading, and he says, we are witnessing the collapse of globalization as we know it. In the front panel of his book, he says, 2019 was the last year of the global economy. It's gone. It's done. Get used to the new normal of, no, of supply chain woes, right? That lifestyle of a world of cheap goods and a better quality of life at lower prices is gone. Sorry, I don't know if you knew that, but that, I think that's what's happening, Right? And, and with that globalization came the fall of multiculturalism, right? The great hope of Europe in the last several years, about 20 years now, multiculturalism was the hope to unite all these diverse people groups. came crashing down. Just a couple years ago, former uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel said that the multicultural project of Europe has failed. Oof. Uh, education, Right? We're still we're in an interesting transition here, but there are many of us who grew up being told education was the pathway to success, and it kind of, for the most part, seemed to be that was the case until the last decade, where that's no longer guaranteed. In some cases, an education is a financial disaster, right? Uh, science, technology, science being co-opted by our politics, politics so corrupt, there's no way it's going to unify us. Only the most naive or deceived believes that the answer is going to be in politics, now, now don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we can never hope in any of these institutions or that they're so entirely corrupt we have to abandon them. I'm just simply saying that as we look around, none of these are stable enough, strong enough to build your hope on. That's become very clear. But the great encouraging things about, about the gospel amidst all of this craziness in our culture is the gospel message has been quietly, or I mean, depending if you go to this church, maybe more loudly proclaiming the hope that has always been the case. That doesn't ebb and flow with popular opinion, that doesn't trend sometimes or not. It is the hope. And the Bible talks about it in all kinds of different ways, and we see so here in Romans chapter 8. So here is the reason you can build your life on the Christian hope. I can give it to you in one word. It's right in verse 18. Glory. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. What makes the Christian hope something worth building your life upon? Because it's glorious. And Paul's going to give us three reasons. Let me just give you real quickly. Three important ways that the Christian hope is glorious. Number one, I think in verse 18, the Christian hope is glorious because it makes the best and most amount of sense of the suffering and the pain and the hardships of our lives. i never forget in our, one of our Revelation series in the Reflection Service, there was a gentleman sitting here, and he says, why does God just keep us here? Why don't when we become believers, he just take us away? Why do we go through all the struggle, all the hardship, experience all the evil and suffering in this world? 
you've heard people pose that question. Well, if there is a God, why does he allow all the suffering, all this evil, all that hardship? Maybe you've asked the question. I think it has to do, Paul's giving us a hint here, it has to do with his purposes in making us his image bearers. What I mean by that is this. According to Genesis chapter 1, humanity was made to be the image bearers of God, to be his representations in the world. And God, being merciful, compassionate, and forgiving, the question is, how can we as his image bearers Truly and fully learn mercy and compassion in forgiveness if we live in a world that does not require any of those. Think about that for a second. How can we learn to forgive if we live in a world where there's nothing to forgive? How can we learn the depth of compassion in a world where there is no suffering, there is no agony, there is no loss? How can we learn to empathize and sympathize in a world where there is no pain or loneliness or grief? Friends, think about that for a second. Those of you who know that experience, you know full well you can't learn any of that from reading a book, right? You can't learn mercy by, by listening to a lecture. You will not grow in compassion because you watch a documentary on it. And if you think you can learn and grow in mercy and compassion and graciousness because you read a book or you listened to a lecture, you've been in school too long, right? That's not how that works. It's only when you encounter real evil, real suffering, real hardship, Not just encounter it, but by God's grace, encounter it and overcome it. Can you learn, more importantly, can you be merciful and compassionate and gracious? See, friends, God will allow us to experience evils in this world. He will allow his children to endure suffering, to know pain. So we can be exactly like him. Merciful to those who have betrayed him, compassionate to those who are weak, empathetic with those who struggle. Friends, in part, this is why when you look around our world, some of the, the smartest, or some of the, some of the beautifulest amongst us, the strongest amongst us, the healthiest amongst us, are also some of the most narcissistic, mean-spirited, and heartless amongst us. And some of the most kindest and wisest and gracious are some of the most broken, worn, and grief-stricken. You've seen that. This is a fundamental teaching that's woven throughout all of Scripture, the redemptive value of suffering, that God allows the very things he hates to accomplish the very thing he loves, to make an entire people who understand mercy because we've experienced mercy, because we've had to extend mercy, a people who know forgiveness and kindness and grace. You see, we want, we'll settle for too little. We'll settle for a good life. God will not settle until we are good. And you can't be good unless you're merciful and compassionate. And you can't be merciful and compassionate until you've learned how to suffer well. That's just the reality. 
This is all woven through the scriptures. By contrast, by contrast, I want to read to you, you may not know the name, but he's one of the most influential thinkers who has really shaped the modern world we live in. John Paul Sartre, French existentialist, maybe you remember him. Here's what he says. All, exist, all existing things are born for no reason. They continue through weakness and die by accident. It is meaningless that we are born. It is meaningless that we die. So you know what that means, too. Based on this worldview, your suffering, your pain, your struggle is meaningless as well. Friends, that is not a hope of any kind. Certainly not a way to build your life. But that's out there. Notice what Paul says in verse 19. Our hope is to be revealed as the sons and therefore daughters of God. The true image bearers we were created to be. And so amazing will this be. I can't unpack it fully, but verse 19 says that the creation eagerly awaits the revealing of that reality. And the truth of the matter is, because of our sin, humanity's sin, we brought all this destruction and decay into creation. And so our redemption also is going to bring redemption of creation. We'll unpack that a little bit. But this is why Paul says, look, I consider the sufferings, the things I'm going through, they can't be compared to the glory that is to come. Because those difficulties, difficulties are not meaningless. Our sufferings are not pointless. They serve a purpose, and that is to make us fully and truly into the image bearers of God who is merciful, kind, and compassionate. And guys, there, there's no other way to be that kind of person. You know, just speaking off the top of my head, which my wife always tells me not to do, one way I've kind of realized is one of the things I love about being in a multi-generational church, sometimes when I'm struggling, I don't want to talk to the younger people here. You know who I talk to? The older saints. Because when I talk to the younger people, I'm usually going to get something like, well, have you done this, this, and this? Well, I would never do that. Well, you must be doing something wrong. Oh, okay, I'm not a good Christian. I talk to the older saints. You know what I get? Brother, I get it. They weep with me. They know because they've suffered. And Paul says, man, our, our, the glory to come, it cannot compare because we're going to be made like the Father. Friends, that's why the Christian hope is worth building your life upon because it answers some of the greatest perplexities of life. Why do we suffer? Why is there evil? Why do these things exist? Because our Father says, because I want you to be like me. I want you to get it. I want you to feel it in your bones. I don't want you to read about it in a book or watch it in a documentary. I want mercy and grace and compassion to be woven into the fabric of who you are. And I want a whole people like that. Wow. Here's the second reason. It's, it's connected to the first. That glory is not just some kind of abstract thing out there, but it personally transforms you. You will be glorious. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say about this. God, he says, will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess. A dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long. Seems to be the average about 80 years or so. 
and in parts very painful. But that is what we're in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. Friend, there's a third reason the Christian hope is worth building your life upon. We can't unpack it too much. But yes, it answers our deepest questions about suffering and the hardships we endure. It also is a personal, glorious transformation. But did you notice also in the reading, it includes a renewal of the creation itself? Look at verse 21 and 22 when Paul says, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That happened in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 and through 19. When we brought sin into the world, not only were we cursed, but everything was messed up. We condemned all of creation. It's not just humanity and its longing for the redemption of the sons and daughters of God. That the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Oh, for we know, verse 22, that the whole of creation is groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Man, you nature lovers, you think nature is awesome now. Can you imagine what it's going to be when it gets to be what it was intended to be? Just like humanity, as amazing as we can be, right, with our fallenness, we ain't nothing yet. The creation, it's waiting to be renewed. Friends, the reason the Christian hope is something you can build your life upon is because it doesn't just include us. It talks about the whole material world around us. The good of the material world is directly tied into the good of God's people. You see that right there in the text? It's waiting for us to become what we were intended to be. We were the ones that messed it up, but we're also the key to its redemption when God redeems us finally in that one wonderful day and all creation is remade. And it's not better. It's not just getting back to Eden. It's better than getting back to Eden. You know why? Because we will be like him fully and truly. Because we've endured suffering. We know what mercy, compassion, and kindness looks like. It's better than Eden. That's part of the Christian hope. And that's really important because I think we're not going to get into it too much. I, I think I've made my point of why we want to build our life on the Christian hope. But it is here in the text. We have this odd relationship with the creation in our culture. We, we either we crash in one of two dishes, right? We either crash in the ditch of, of deifying the creation, whether you do that religiously, like, you know, the Mother Earth, Gaia Mother, Mother Earth, and we worship it, or um, secularly, for kind of environmentalism gets all crazy about creation, or we deny creation, right? So you can have that religiously, too, like the Hindu vision of Maya, that everything's illusion, so this material world doesn't matter, or a secular version can be like capitalism, where we don't think about using, stewarding creation, the, the gospel has this wonderful view of creation as a blessing for us to use, but a stewardship by which we are responsible for. Anyway, that's a different sermon on that biblical view. But the point is, I made my point. Question number one, why build your life upon the Christian hope? Because it's glorious. It answers our struggles, our hearts cry of what's going wrong. It promises us we will be radically transformed and the world in which we inhabit. So why build it? Those three reasons. Second question is point two. <clears throat> How can we be sure that this hope is guaranteed? Well, that's because the help that is there. Look at verse 26. Paul tells us plainly, the Spirit himself helps in our weaknesses. And the word that's translated help there, it's a very, very practical word when it's used in Scripture. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 40 when Martha speaks to Jesus and says, hey, can you get Mary to help me with all these things I'm doing, right? She was complaining because there's so much to do and she needed some help. Uh, more positively, in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 18, verse 22, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, tells Moses, hey, get some other judges to help you with the people so your job is easier. 
Um, Numbers eleven seventeen, when the Spirit of God falls on other men of the nation of Israel to help shepherd the flock so, so, so they can do the job, every time this word appears, it talks about this really practical help in a situation that otherwise would be overwhelming that you could not do on your own. And Paul gives us a specific example of how the Spirit's going to help us. You see it right there, right? Prayer. Friend, I hope, I hope it's a comfort to you, especially if you're like me and knowing that even when you feel exasperated in your prayers and your prayers are a little less, a little more than just groans, like Paul says here, that the Spirit, he comes in and converts it to something useful. You see that in verse 27? The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What does that mean exactly? You, you ever talk to somebody who's good with words and you have a hard time expressing what you're feeling, you know, you're just trying to, you're, you're stumbling through your words, and, and then they just, they kind of step in and, and, and say exactly what you meant, what you're saying, and they sum it all up, and you're like, that's it, that's exactly how I'm feeling right now. That's kind of what the Spirit does. You have those moments where you're just praying, and you know what to say. Lord, I... <clears throat> It's kind of like how I was two weeks ago at the end of service, right? Just, I can't. I just don't know what to say. Just, you're like, oh, Lord. So what's going on here is the Spirit says, oh, so what you mean by, oh, is Heavenly Father, would you in your mercy remember your great promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? And would you work powerfully that the aroma of Christ would beautifully rise up from these people and grace, the beauty of grace would permeate the situation and they would walk in circumspect repentance and faith? That's what you meant, isn't it? Yes, that's what I'm going to bring to the Father. And the Father says, I, I like that prayer. I'm going to take that. And you're just going, I don't know, God. That's what's happening here. The Spirit helps in our weaknesses when all you feel is grief and you can't say anything. You don't know the complexities of the situation. Your heart breaks for something and you have no idea how to pray and you just moan and groan. The Spirit goes, I get it. I can take care of that. But just to be clear, this isn't uh, a guarantee of supercharged prayers for anything fleshly or carnal desires like a new car or whatever. That's not what's going on here at all. Notice the important caveat there in verse 26, 27. The Spirit intercedes to pray as we ought, right? So there's a moral obligation here. This is something we ought to do. Well, what is that ought? Paul defines in the second half of verse 27. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And in the context of Romans 8, it tells us that the Spirit prays in such a way that the hope we have of being conformed to the Son, which is what being a true image bearer is all about, and that is the glory that's spoken up above, is going to happen. So how do we know this hope? This hope that makes sense of our sufferings? This hope that transforms and restores not just us, but the world we inhabit the hope upon which we can confidently build our lives. How do we know it's going to be realized? Because the text tells us the Holy Spirit is interceding and praying on our behalf to make this, reality, this very reality take place. And it's not just the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 7.25 tells us the Son does the same. Consequently, 
He, speaking of Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. So how do we know this hope will not fail us? Paul says, because the Spirit, he's praying. And the Son, he's praying. And did you notice, God the Father is also at work, verse 28 to 30. Let me just read it to you. I'll read it a couple times today, but let me just read it again. And we know for those who, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. Who's he talking about? God the Father. He also, God the Father, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, speaking of God, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, all talking about God. And so how do we know this hope is assured to us? Because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all praying to make it happen. This good, this good is guaranteed to us. So that's the last question, though, or last thing we need to look at. The good that is guaranteed. And I know very few people are familiar with Romans chapter 8, 28, but I, but I hope that you're seeing it in its proper context. That is to say that the good Paul is referring to is not necessarily uh, earthly material comfort or things working out to the way we'd prefer them to. There's a specific good in mind. The good that Paul is referring to is our conformity to Christ. That we would be like that last Adam to be that new humanity that God is creating, of which the church is an embassy to this dark and hostile world, to which every individual Christian is an ambassador of that church, being a representative of Christ to the world. The good is our conformity to Christ. You see that in verse 29, particularly verse 19, that, that's sandwiching this here. The good is our conformity to Christ, a closer fellowship with God, that we'd be bearing fruit to the kingdom and yes, of ultimately, verse 30, our glorification. That's the good that's being referred to here. And if it's hard to, to, to grapple with that, and think, think about for a moment here how relative the concept of good actually is, right? Here's an example. If we mean by good, if what we mean by good is material comforts, ease, a few vacations a year, stable employment, intact families, good health, if that's what we mean by the good, that can also lead to a lot of self-reliance, moral smugness, confidence in the flesh, and selfishness to maintain all those goods that you have and work so hard and achieve by the strength of your hand. And you have the danger of sounding like that guy from Luke 12, 19. I have many goods. My soul is merry. I should build bigger barns to hold all the goods that I've been given. And Jesus says, oh, you fool. Your soul's accounted over you tonight. And what will all those goods do for you? Is that really good? No, that's really not really good. On the other hand, sometimes when trials come and just knock the wind out of us, takes away all the things that we relied upon, don't you find a unique strength and fellowship with Christ? That your fellowship with God deepens because, quite frankly, you don't have much else. So those bad circumstances actually begin to seem pretty good because you're becoming more like Jesus Christ in that moment. 
In other words, friends, what makes something good is not a particular set of circumstances, but how the heart interacts with them. To quote that theologian Shakespeare, the fault, dear Brutus, is not within our stars, but within ourselves. It is more important to have a changed heart than a set of changed circumstances. And this good, it is guaranteed because God is making it happen. We call it the golden chain, verse 30. The golden chain. Notice who's doing the action of all the verbs. It's God doing everything. Every step of the way, it's God doing it all. Right? And notice, by the way, what's the grammatical tense of the verb? It's not future tense. God will do this. This will happen. Notice the text. It's written in the past tense. You have been justified. You have been glorified. What's going on? The fact that this is a reality is so certain. God wrote it in the past tense. This hope is so assured, there's no chance that it's going to go sideways. Write this, Paul, past tense. It's already a done deal. Maybe you're familiar with Philippians 1.6, is it? He who began a good work in you, what? Will complete it to that final day, right? He'll bring it about. So is the hope of Christianity worth building your life upon? Friends, is there another hope more secure than to have the Father, Son, and Spirit making sure it's going to happen? Granted, it may not happen the way you want, but it will happen the way you need. And that's where we can trust the Lord for that. Is there a hope more hopeful? I'm going to let you decide, but before you do, before I end, I want to read two sets of quotes from you for you. One is to represent the th thinking of our world today. One is a, a biological scientist from Cornell University. One's a little bit older. He's a, a British philosopher. This is the one view that the world has. Here's Dr. William Provine, professor of biological sciences at Cornell University. There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces of any kind. There is no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead. That's the end for me. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. Mm. Not something to build your life on, is it? Here's another one. One of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century. All the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Well, glad you came to church today, right? Woo! Here's why I like these guys. At least they're being honest. Friends, at the end of the day, there's only one game in town. Either the gospel is true or it's not. If it's not true, this is it. That's all you got. And I appreciate that they're being honest with that reality. As gloomy as it might be, they're not living their lives in distraction from entertainment or ignoring the logical consistency of that worldview. So i got to ask, is that worth building your life upon? Is that a hope? No. Let me end with this one last contrasting statement by G. Campbell Morgan. He was an Anglican rector at the Westminster Abbey in London. 
you are to remember with the passion burning within you that you are not a child of today. You are not of the earth. You are more than dust. You are the child of tomorrow. You are of the eternities. You are the offspring of deity. The measurements of your lives cannot be circumscribed by the point where blue sky kisses green earth. All the facts of your life cannot be encompassed in the one small sphere upon which you live. You belong to the infinite. If you make your fortune on earth, poor, sorry, silly soul, you have made a fortune and stored it in a place where you cannot hold it. Make your fortune but store it where it will greet you in the dawning of the new morning. Friends, that is the triumph of the gospel. That is a hope worth building your life on. That is the message of Romans 18 to 30. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. Father, you fill our lives with so many hopes, and they are good hopes, family, friends, health. But, but because of what Adam has done, every one of those hopes will fail. Russell is correct. Family, friends, health will all be taken from every one of us. It's not if, but when. And so, Father, we're left to, to, to look at the debris of the ruin of our life in despair where we can look to the gospel and its triumph over death. And to realize that the best is yet to come. Help every one of us, Lord. May there not be a person that leaves this room without building their life upon that hope. May there not be anyone who's unsure or whether or not they have that hope. Father, we pray for great gospel conversations. We pray for the magnifying of the name of Christ. And we pray all this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.